This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael. Now, crank it up. All right, Growing Up Rock listeners. So listen, admittedly, Little Caesar is a band in the late 80s that escaped me completely, missed them. I remember the video for Chain of Fools, and I knew it was a Motown classic, but that was about it. At the time, they never really quite connected with me, and I never really gave them a fair shake. Now here we are, years later, as I started up this podcast and exploring and getting turned on to a ton of great music that I missed in those days which is a lot, I discovered the debut Little Caesar album. And that sent me down the musical rabbit hole, as my co-host likes to say, listening to the rest of the Little Caesar catalog, including the latest album that they just released last year called Eight. The great thing about doing this podcast is that it forces me to research and educate myself on the history of a band or an artist. In the case of Little Caesar, I discovered an interesting story of can't-miss rock-and-roll teams, rock-and-roll lunacy, and mishaps along the way that derailed a killer rock-and-roll band. Singer Ron Young was kind enough to take me down that path where the story would make for a ridiculously great documentary or even a movie. Crazy shit I'm talking about. Since I started this podcast to shine the light on bands that I loved when I was growing up, plus new bands that I'm discovering every day, I've conducted a pretty good bit of interviews. And I have to say, this interview with Ron Young from Little Caesar was one of the more honest, interesting, and natural conversations I've ever had about music and the music business in general. Ron was super nice, super candid, and spoke to me about everything in his life drugs, the downfalls of rock and roll, mishaps, missteps, and just great music. If you are a fan of the band Little Caesar, you will absolutely love this interview. And if you were like me and missed them when they surfaced back in the late 80s, you will have a blast listening to this and most likely become a fan of their no frills, dirty rock and blues brand of rock and roll. So sit back and check out this interview with Little Caesar's Ron Young. Hey, this is Ron Young from Little Caesar, and you're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with Stephen Michael in Hollywood. Now, crank that shit up. Didn't think about tomorrow.
Welcome to the Growing Up Rock Podcast, Ron Young. What's going on, Ron? Oh, just enjoying a sweltering hot day in Southern California, hoping it doesn't keep rocking and rolling the way it's been doing. Well, at least your humidity is probably not 150% like it is down here in the South. Yes, it is, it is a dry heat. There is no doubt about that. <laughs> you walk out of the shower down here in the South and you're immediately sweating and need to take another shower. Five minutes later. I know I grew up in New York, so I, I totally remember that quite well. <laughs> Yeah, so before we get into the latest release, 8, by the band, Ron, let's discuss a little bit of your youth and some of your history. Uh, Tell us some of your earliest musical discoveries. What bands did you listen to growing up? Well, you know, I'm the youngest of a three-kid family, and fortunately, both my brother and sister were really into music. My brother was really into a lot of blues and blues rock. And my sister was really into Motown and soul. So when I started to show a real interest in music at like nine, 10 years old and felt the great escape that music could give a kid who was locked in his room and mad at his mom or whatever, they both made it a point to really try to show me the evolution of how the rock and roll that all my friends were turning me on to came from earlier forms of music. So they really gave me a great schooling and a broad insight into a lot of types of stuff where my friends were strictly just Black Sabbath and Queen and Zeppelin and, you know, all that stuff. And I'd be like, well, you know, hey, guys, check this out. My brother turned me on to Howlin' Wolf. And this is like the same song that Zeppelin did, but done totally different. And so, you know, I was like the kid in the neighborhood that was bringing them, you know, some music to listen to that they got turned on to. So. I was really lucky in that way. My mom, too. My mom would listen to, like, Dinah Washington and Ray Charles and Sarah Vaughn and and Frank Sinatra. So I grew up immersed in all these different forms of music, and I got to feel the sort of transitions through time and style, um, which gave me a deeper knowledge and appreciation of music. And it was really great. You know, I started out and then being like 10 years old, riding around on my bicycle and listen, you know, blown away. What got me started to think about making music was, you know, here's this kid, Michael Jackson, who's my age. And he sounds like some 45 year old black dude singing his heart out about getting his heart broken and doing it with like this amazing dancing and showmanship. And I was like, wow, man, he's like my age. I could do the same thing which, of course, nowhere near had the talent that he did. But, you know, you put all that together. And guys like Paul Rogers, who's one of my vocal heroes, and, you know, Johnny Winter for his guitar ability and blues and, you know, all these different. It was such a great time in music back then. There was so much going on. And so I just completely immersed myself in the escapism, the fantasy, you know, safety valve that music could give you at a really early age. That's awesome. So it's kind of interesting because uh, you talked about the Sabbaths and Zeppelins and the Queens, but then you kind of went backwards through your family routes and discovered the Howlin' Wolves and and the uh, Dinah Washingtons, things like that, which is, that's interesting to me that you kind of took that path versus the reverse. Yeah, kind of funny because some of my friends used to tease me because they'd come over to the house and I had this this great old hi-fi set, as my parents and grandfather called it. 
my grandfather was he was really into tube amps and you know back then it was tube amps and speakers and he was kind of one of those guys that felt he would show off by getting the best of the best now even though the stereo that was given to me didn't look like my friends teased me because back then it was marantz and yamaha and all these and here i had this ancient exposed tube amp with these cloth big clunky cloth speakers it sounded great but it looked like a dinosaur rig but you know it had all this warmth to it you know it kind of started me on having a passion for tube gear and analog gear and all that kind of stuff which is a whole separate thing but you know my friends used to tease me about all the different types of music that i'd listen to and eventually you know they'd be like hey man can i borrow that record you know because like i'd be listening to like the johnny burnett version from the 50s of train kept a rolling right and i was like oh man i know that song that's this song and they they didn't even know it was a cover song you know yeah so it was kind of cool because i started to get looked at as like the kid who knew a lot of stuff about a lot of stuff you know (laughs) (laughs) you know it kind of it was kind of cool and i turn them on to these things and they'd be like I'd be like, hey, man, you know, Johnny Winter's playing with Muddy Waters at the Beacon Theater. And they're like, oh, man, we got to get tickets, you know. And where before it was just all the bands that were on the cover of Cream and Circus, you know, the contemporary bands. So it was kind of cool, you know. What was your first concert? Do you remember? My first concert, my brother took me to see James Brown. Wow. I got to see James Brown. I got to see Zeppelin when they were recording the song Remains the Same at Madison Square Garden. Nice. He took me to a lot of, yeah, Sly and the Family Stone I got to see. They took me out to concerts. Now, unfortunately, when I got into like my later teens, it all kind of became a blur because I remember going to see like Black Sabbath, but I was so high that I never remembered the concert. <laughs> Some of the concerts I went to and wound up just passed out in the back of a car in the parking lot because I didn't time my consumables properly. <laughs> you know, but live and learn. You know, I kind of I got better at it, you know, going into my college years, you know. That's good. You progressed. So I used to I used to laugh and say, I've slept through some of the greatest bands in history, you know. You know, and I often wonder about that because that was just the norm, I think, back in those days. You know, you time your consumables and, and you do it right and you catch some amazing shows. But the memories that you have today, how clear are they for a lot of people? And at least you're honest and saying, look, you know, I, I, I didn't time it quite right. And I missed a lot of amazing concerts, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I have the ticket stub to prove it. But you know what? Don't ask me much about it. But <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know. Do you remember, did, did you happen to catch um, Sabbath in 79 when Van Halen opened up that tour? No, I didn't see yeah. that. It's funny because I remember seeing, and I bumped into the guy later, you know, one of the nice things about, you know, when you make music, like I say, I think really great musicians, they're fans of music way before they're bakers of music and and they transfer that into their own art. But, you know, when you get a record deal and you're running around with, you know, the professionals and the really well-known, you get to meet a lot of your idols. So one time I bumped into Steve Hunter, the guitar player, who played with so many great, you know, acts early on, who finally got the credit due, like Aerosmith finally admitted that he played on a lot of their stuff. Anyway, I saw the Welcome to My Nightmare tour with Alice Cooper, and 
their guitar player at the time was having a bit of a drinking problem. So Steve Hunter was backstage. Now I could only afford cheap tickets and I was behind the stage, you know, at Madison square garden, they used to sell really cheap tickets and you were kind of right behind the PA and all you got was echo and you could see the crew and catch a bit of what was happening downstage. But there's this guy behind the amps with his own guitar and his own amp. And I was like, I think that's that guy, Steve Hunter. And years and years and years, decades later, I met him in a studio. And I said, hey, was that you? And he's like, yep, that was me. And I was like, I knew it. I knew it. And all of a sudden, like the 16-year-old kid came back in me, you know? And I was <laughs> like, and I felt, man, I thought, I knew it. Everyone said, no, nah, no, nah, that doesn't happen, you know? And it's like, why would he be back there? And I was like, no, nah, that's... So wait a minute. Let me get this straight. So you're saying you you saw... Cooper on the Welcome to My Nightmare tour, and they had this guy, uh, Hunter, off stage, buried somewhere, yep. playing live guitar because yep. the guitar player they had on stage had a drinking issue? Yeah, he wasn't really cutting it. And so, and also, you know, on the records, they give credit to the guys in the band, and guys like Steve Hunter were called in by producers all the time. Jack Douglas, they played on a lot of iconic stuff, and sort of like the Motown guys, the, the Funk Brothers. Yeah. They weren't given credit for the magic that they created for all of the guys out front, the people they were marketing. And so for the sake of the music, they brought Steve Hunter, who played a lot of those guitar parts on the record. And the guy, either from a talent standpoint or a level of inebriation, wasn't really cutting it in front of 18,000 people. So they'd stick them kind of ahead of their time with like samplers or, you know, like when we toured with Kiss, my buddy Gary Corbett played backup keyboards on all this stuff and kept them hidden off stage with samples and rhythm guitar parts. So it's like, so they kind of started this kind of stuff in the seventies where they had guys downstage doing all the pyro and the lights. And that's the guys I see on the record pictures and everything. But for the music, they had this other guy backstage supplementing. Well, you know, I was aware of the Dick Wagners and the Bob Kulix playing on Kiss Records and exactly what you said, like Ace Fraley was drunk and passed out somewhere. So they brought in Bob Kulik to do some guitar parts for Kiss. And I was well aware of all that, but I don't think I was really aware that they would. And I knew about the keyboard players, but I don't think I was really aware that they would have like an actual guitar player off stage yeah. somewhere playing, yep. <laughs> playing and covering up. Yeah. Well, whatever gets the job done, you know, <laughs> it turned into, turned into lip syncing and stuff. And yeah. there's a whole lot of funny, I mean, God, the Gene Simmons stories and the Aussie stories, you could go on for years and years and they're hysterical and enlightening. And really funny. And, you know, these guys do what they have to do and they don't admit it. You know, what bothers me, though, is sometimes when they call other people out for doing exactly what they're doing, yeah. you know, and that's really the hypocrisy. Kind of the, the hypocrisy is, is especially if you've got some insider information or behind the curtain information and then you brings my opinion down of them kind of a bit. I think that's why so many people were pissed off at Gene and Paul from Kiss because they were sort of being hypocritical when they called some people out for stuff that they were actually doing as well. Yeah, exactly right. They're kind of way up on the list of that. But (laughs) you know what? Gene is a character and uh, he's loved and hated equally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. He couldn't care less. (laughs) No, I think you're right. Yeah, you're right. What was that experience like when you guys toured with them? 
it was pretty amazing. It was very eye-opening. You know, Gene is, well, Gene and Paul, they're like an old married couple. It reminded me of my grandparents, but the way they would bicker and fight, just that's what happens when you're in a family with somebody for decades. But it was really a great and amazing experience, you know, for us going from clubs to step out into big rooms like that. And you got one sound check and that's all you got. The rest of the time, they just threw your gear up and they would just wing it as you go. You know, half the time, the tickets say doors open at seven and we'd be on at 6.45. You know, <laughs> kind of uh, paying your dues kind of thing, half the PA, half the lights. But Gene would watch every one of our shows and he'd come backstage after every show and give us, he'd like emulate our body language and he would emulate what I was doing and what I was saying in between songs. And he really took it upon himself. And he did this with just about every band that ever went on tour with him to try to, you know, teach them things. Now, a lot of the things I had, I disagreed with yeah, because he comes from spectacle and, Gene always says, I'm not a musician, I'm an entertainer. A good show is when the pyro goes off on time. A good show is when you sell a lot of shirts. And we were more of a a blue-collar type band that was about the music. And so some of the things I had sort of philosophical disagreements with, but I totally appreciated the fact that he would take the time and the energy you know, it was kind of funny because like, he was like, what's with the goatee? What's with the facial hair? You know, because we were like the first band to have him. And before the Seattle guys and everything. And he's like, what, what is this, the fucking 70s? You know, save that shit. You're not hippies, you know. And then when like six months later, the whole Seattle thing exploded. You know, I bumped into Gene on the Sunset Strip and he had a goatee. I'm like, hey, what's with the beard, asshole? (laughs) He's like, you know, kiss my ass. You know, so he's not stupid enough to, you know, sometimes he might as well join him if you can't beat him. Yeah. But it was really a great experience. But the funny thing was, we'll get into the business side of things, you know, as to what happened with the band and the band's career. But it was funny because we... Our manager was Jimmy Iovine at the time. So we had this big manager, he's friends with Gene, and to get ready for the big push and release, trying to get us on a tour, Jimmy finds out that a Winger got pulled off the tour because the label didn't think that they had a strong enough lead-off single. So they said, listen, let's pull him off the road, let's get him writing, let's get him recording, and we'll get him back on the road. So there was an opening up, an opening slot. So... We got offered the support and Slaughter moved up in the bill and ticket sales really dropped. This wasn't kisses really, you know, they weren't wearing makeup. Really, they needed a lot of support from the openers. Right. I remember that tour. To fill the rooms. And when Winger dropped off, ticket sales really took a dump. And we're a new band. The weight, you know, the pressure isn't on us. But turns out Winger went in, they had another song, they knocked it out in like a week and they were ready to go. So Gene wanted us off the tour and wanted to get them back on the tour, get ticket sales back up. So one of the greatest lines I've ever heard in the music business, Gene calls up Jimmy. And now this is before the internet. So when the band played, the writers for the local magazines and newspapers would be there. And the next day or two days later, the reviews would come out. It would take a while till it got back to L.A., you know. The publicists would get it from the, the local people. and blah, blah. So anyway, so Gene would call up and say, oh, your guys are in crowd doesn't like them, which is BS. Every review is great. But Gene says, we got to get them off the tour. They're going over like pork chops at a bar mitzvah. 
which I just thought was one of the greatest lines I've ever heard. And even though I was mad, I was like, that's a really good line. <laughs> so it's just kind of stuff like that. You know, the rough and tumble world. And one last quick story. We, we had like a three-day off break. And we were up in the Northeast. Gita Paul went back to New York. We hung around in some cheap hotel room. And what they would do if ticket sales were really bad, like to the point of where they were going to lose money or it was embarrassing to the band, the standard excuse was that Paul got into a car accident. He's fine, just a minor thing, but we have to cancel the show. We're going to reschedule. So we get up to Massachusetts somewhere, and we, we pull in with the tour bus down underneath the arena and where you know all the riggers, all the you know all the semis are there and everything. And we're there, and a limo pulls in, and Gene gets out. We're making small talk with Gene. Another limo pulls in. Paul gets out, and he comes walking over to us, and he throws his head back like he's all miffed and walks right past Gene. And Gene's like, and again, this is like they're like my grandparents. What? What? Are you mad at me? What? what are you, why are you mad at me? And Paul goes, I'm in a car accident. You don't call. You don't send me flowers. <laughs> Nothing. I could be dead. Nothing. <laughs> And she's like, I didn't know you were in a car accident. I thought we canceled the show, like, because of the ticket sales thing. No, I was in a car accident. I could be dead now. Do you care? And we're like going, oh, my God. It's like watching my grandparents. <laughs> and Paul wouldn't talk to him for like two days. It was hysterical. So it's, it's just, you know, you see these things and we look at each other like, is this really happening? <laughs> you know? it's, it's everything that you read in, in uh, Paul Stanley's book. He's just ultra sensitive. Yeah. And it's just really funny. And, you know, it's just like watching this stuff backstage go on. Like we did a show at the Meadowlands, right? So that's my stomping grounds. I saw a million concerts. And to me, this was like, you know, if I died tomorrow, my life would be fulfilled because I'm actually playing on the stage, seeing all these bands. My life's dreams come true. Even if we don't get famous or we get rich, I could die tomorrow. And so it turns out that Gene's mom came to the show. Gene would always do his meet and greets before the show. And the reason why he did that was he'd have his production manager, Charlie Hernandez, follow him around. And as soon as people started to become overwhelming or too much conversation, Gene would give Charlie a little hand signal and Charlie would come over and listen, everybody, I know Gene loves you and he'd love to keep talking to you all night, but he has to go get ready for his show now. And Gene would be like, come on, come on. No, no, Gene, sorry. And everybody would moan. And so Gene wouldn't look like the villain. Sure. And so he would do this every night. But at the Meadowlands, his mom was at the show. He decided tonight I'm going to do the meet and greet afterwards and come out and hang out and hang out in my hometown. So Gene's mom, who's Israeli, and she's like four foot two. She's this tiny old woman. I'm sure she's passed away by now. But so she comes pushing through the crowd, and Gene's like, he's got his rock helmet on, you know, his his wig, and he's got, you know, his whole stage gear and everything on. And she pushes through the crowd. And so she goes, Heim. She calls him Heim because that's his real name. She's Heim. The orchestra's done playing now. Are you going to take off your hairpiece? <laughs> and everyone's like, Oh my, so he pats her on the head. Yes, mom. The rock helmet is coming off shortly. It's very sweaty. Yes. And it was so hysterical, but so endearing. You know what I mean? Yeah. The fact that she called it the orchestra. And, you know, so like these little things you get to see behind the scenes yeah. that are not pyro and explosions and the larger than life and 
the humanity of it, that people try to hide this stuff, especially someone like Gene Simmons, who believes it's all about the pyro going off on time. And it's all about looking like you're from outer space. Right. Bigger, louder, you know, more. And he doesn't look at it from the music side. He looks at it from the entertainment side, putting people in the seats, selling them stuff, generating revenue. You know, but on the other side, it's like we were in Rochester and there was this, we were staying in this hotel and there was this little bar next door and we had a, we all rolled in the night before, the day before the show. And Gene comes and knocks on my door and says, hey, man, they got a whole set of backline at this little bar. You want to go jam on some songs? And I'm like, of course. So we go over there and we played for like two hours, Motown songs and old R&B songs and like Chuck Berry songs and he was better than anything I saw him do with Kiss because it's like, wow, he's he's a really good bass player. His parts in Kiss are a lot simpler than a James Jameson Motown part, but he could play all that stuff. And the grin on his face, and you could just see that even though he's all about the money and the, the show business and the explosions, beating down inside that heart that's all about the money is a guy that – Doors his music. Oh yeah, and it was really nice to see. You know, he's like, "You want to do a Who song?" We're like, "Yeah." He's like, "Okay, can't explain." Okay, ready? What? Oh wait, let me tell you something. You hear the riff in this song? I stole this riff for this song. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it all comes from somewhere. Right. He was so happy to be able to say, "Oh yeah, this is where I stole this song, and this is where I stole that song," and he knows them all really well because that's. You know, in a way, he was paying homage to things like, again, going back to you're a fan first. Yeah. And he loved it so much that he decided to be moved by it to steal it, you know, quote unquote, steal it. You know, everybody's influenced by somebody. And there's a lot of stuff that's very similar to other stuff. But Gene was kind of known to pay reverence in his own way. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of songs.
like me sugar Helping children's reach Like my empty skin Wash up on the beach Jump back to this. Little Caesar releases this EP early on in your career, which essentially leads to your deal with Geffen, correct? No, that was completely contrived move by our record label, Inside Dirt. We put that out just to get something out on Metal Blade because Guns N' Roses did really good with their EP. Yeah, okay. So it was already all worked out and in, in the bag while we were getting ready to go start the main record. So that's just, just to give you the inside poop on that. Okay. So you released the EP after you already had secured the deal with Geffen then that's what yes. I'm hearing. Okay. Correct. So on that first record, this is where I love my job because I start digging into things and educating myself about bands history and things like that. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't know any of this stuff that I read. And so I read into this. And so on this first record, you end up with Bob Rock producing the first record. You end up with Jimmy Iovine as your manager and John Kolodner as your A&R guy. Is that all correct? That's all correct. And that's actually, you would think, and that's what everybody thought would be, this band is going to skyrocket and explode and it turns into a giant battle of egos and backbiting and finger pointing. And none of those guys all got along. And the poor little band at the bottom of the food chain got stomped on. All right. Let's get into this because I find this interesting. I think a lot of people, because this all happened roughly around 89 was the first record, correct? Correct. Okay. So the first record's 89. And a lot of people like to point the finger and say, well, grunge killed the rock and roll that we knew at that time. And grunge did this and grunge did that. But as I read into your story and Little Caesar's story, 
I find a different story evolving here. Did you record the record at uh, Little Mountain in Vancouver? Yes. Okay. I mean, just a quick backstory. I put the band together because I couldn't look like a girl. I didn't like teasing my hair or putting on makeup. I was covered <laughs> with tattoos and wrote Harleys. I believed that music that was blues-based and soul-based, which a million bands were for my favorite bands in the 70s, could make a comeback. And that if fans could stop hearing pop metal and can start hearing some good old blues-based classic rock and did it credibly that people would gravitate to it. Obviously, guys like Jimmy Iovine and, and the record label and John Collodner all agreed it's about time that we brought this stuff back. Something had to change. Now, we didn't know it would be grunge, but we think, okay, so we get this huge, largest record deal ever signed by a new band in the history of the music business. The biggest attorney, the biggest manager, the biggest A&R guy, the biggest producer. So we sign this deal. We meet with Bob Rock. We wanted to work with like Tom Dowd or Ed Stasium. No, no, no. John Kaladner knows best. He's going to polish us up, make us compete with all these hair bands. We're like, no, no, no. We don't want to meet with Bob Rock. We go, we want to make a good old school record like Bad Company or Leonard Skinner. Oh, man, I'd love to make a record like that. I keep doing the cult. And all these other bands, and it's all slickly produced. Let's just get up in Lytle Mountain. Let's set up some mics. Let's make a great record. Knock it out quick. Sounds great. That's exactly what we're looking to do. Get up to Little Mountain. We start doing it that way. And all of a sudden, now, first of all, Bob Rock and John Kaladner had a falling out over Blue Murder. So all of a sudden, Bob says, I'm not going to work with that new band, Little Caesar, or you, John. We sit around for a year waiting for them to patch that riff up because there was a contractual obligation. So finally, we get up to Little Mountain after they get over their little spat. We've spent all this money keeping the band alive and letting time tick away. We start recording this record the way we talked about doing it. And all of a sudden, Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood, which is the record he recorded in that one year, goes to number one. And all of a sudden, we went from making a Little Caesar record to making a Bob Rock record. And all of a sudden, keyboards start coming into the studio, and we start overdubbing a million things, and background singers are showing up, and we're like, what the hell? So we're up in Vancouver. We're up there for six months, not six weeks, like we said, spending money, going to strip bars, riding our Harleys, you know, getting thrown out of places, getting really crazy. Finally get the record done, and I'm like, John, you better get up here. Jimmy, you better get up here because we're starting to make this slick 80s produced, overproduced record thing. So this turns into a big battle. I finally come to a happy medium with it and try to tone it down a little bit. And I didn't even want Chain of Fools on the record. John Claudius says, let's make Chain of Fools the single. It worked really good for Van Halen. I'm like, we're not Van Halen. <laughs> Chain of Fools is a great song, but it's not like a monster hit. Aretha made it a monster hit because it's Aretha, <laughs> you know, that woman could sing the phone book and it would sell records. Van Halen but, didn't do Chain of Fools either. No, they did. Really got me. Okay. So anyway, we decide this is what we're going to do. MTV, totally behind the band. You could do any one of these songs off the record. We're going to put it in heavy rotation right off the bat. So all of a sudden, we think we're on Geffen Records. We get back, finally finish the record. We get back to L.A. We hear a phone call saying, we're now putting you on this new label that we're starting for new bands called DGC. It's going to be run by its own label manager. And it's going to be you, this cute little guys named Nelson, 
and this little indie band that'll probably sell 30,000 records, but we're doing it just for the critics to make the label have a good name critically called Nirvana. <laughs> so I say, well, send these other bands records over. So I hear the Nelson record. I'm like, okay, cute little, these guys are cute as hell. And okay, there's some catchy songs, Ricky Nelson's kid, great. Put on the Nirvana record. And I'm like, holy shit, there is really something here. I don't know whether it's going to take off, but as a fan of music, this is really fresh and this is unique and this is new. So anyway, so Nelson's record comes out. They're having a little bit of a trouble with it because, of course, they didn't even have the foresight to know you shoot a video first for a band that looks like two pretty girls. Anyway, I diverge. We come out with Chain of Fools. It goes immediately into heavy rotation. Within a matter of three weeks, three things happen. David Geffen sells the label to Matsuchida. And two weeks after that, our label manager gets fired for masturbating on his secretary. Uh. <laughs> and then... Uh, while this is happening, we're out with Kiss, and Kiss wants to get us off the tour. So all of a sudden, the Japanese come in and say, you've got to stop spending all this money. They, we find out that there's 280 signed bands on the label. And from a business standpoint, they fire the, the label's marketing guy. They bring in this guy, Robert Smith, whose basically job is to call the herd and fire a whole bunch of bands cut back on all the touring money, marketing money, because they need to, you know, they spent $2 billion. And then a week after that, Jimmy Iovine announces, our manager announces he's going to start a label called Interscope. And David Geffen calls him up and says, I want to distribute this new label. I want to do all this. And Jimmy's like, nah, no thanks. So David's like, you know, screw you. And David Geffen decides, you know what, I'll teach you. First of all, the guy that got fired for masturbating on his secretary, he put our record came out. We got 140 ads at radio the first week. So everybody was really, really excited. And we went right into heavy rotation. We sold 180,000 units in about five, six weeks. And they claimed that to be a failure because they all figured with Bob Rock and John Kalodner and Jimmy Iovine, this thing would be platinum in like eight seconds. Meanwhile, we outsold the Black Crows in their first six weeks at a debut. Now, so with all of this happening at one time, all of a sudden I'm getting a million press requests. What happened? Because all of a sudden we're dropping off the charts like, like a lead balloon. The reason for that is when they sold the label, Geffen was distributed by WIA. Mm -hmm. And when they were sold to the Japanese, they went from WIA distribution to BMG distribution. Uh -huh. So all of a sudden the record stores were on MTV calling back to the distributors, we want the Little Caesar record. Well, we don't handle Little Caesar anymore. BMG handles it. BMG goes, we haven't gotten any of the product from WIA yet. And we're right on the charts. So all of a sudden, there's no records to be had. We drop off the charts. The label manager's fired. David and Jimmy are in a battle. Boom, we're done. That was the end of our career in three weeks' time. Jesus. Everybody's pointing the fingers at each other whose fault it is. And all of a sudden, in the industry, who's been talking about us for a year, oh my God, this band, look at the people involved with this band. Oh my God. Blah, blah, blah. You know, look at all the ads they got at radio. Well, right before the label manager gets fired, he decides that we're going to be the first rock band. Now, remember, this is before Nirvana went crossed over to top 40. Right. 
I'm going to take this tattooed biker scumbag tattooed axe murdering looking bunch of guys <laughs> and I'm going to get them played on top 40 radio. Well, he started to send out all the singles and all the promo materials to top 40 guys for the ballad and all the Z-Rock stations and all the rock radio stations who were supporting us, all the AORs and the hard rock stations said, you haven't been out eight seconds and you're trying to turn this band into a platinum. They all dropped us off their playlists because they're like, you arrogant sons of bitches. Who, how do you, who do you think these guys are that you can stop servicing us? which servicing, you know what that means, you know, (laughs) throwing money their way for the program directors to keep us up on the playlist. So all of this happened in a perfect storm. And my phone started to ring. What happened? What's going on? Billboard and New York, LA Times and all these. And I had to be honest and just tell him what had gone on. And David Geffen blew a fit. How dare you make our label look bad? How dare you publicly say what has happened? And he's like, listen, man, you're not seeing the big picture of things. And screw Jimmy Iovine, screw you, that's it. So boom, he's like, go make another record, good luck. But I'm not promoting this one anymore. I've got to get my business in order. So we licked our wounds, brought Earl Slick into the band. We went and did the second record. And then David Geffen said, you can't work with Jimmy Iovine anymore. Why not? Well, in the state of California, a manager can't be a distributor. It's against the law and a conflict of interest. Now that he owns Interscope, I will not talk to him as your manager. It's against the law. So we had to fire Jimmy Ivey and we brought in Herbie Herbert, who worked with Santana. He worked with Journey. Uh, Journey. Yeah. yeah. Great guy. Herbie met with the label. We got the finally got the second record done. We're all depressed. I'm doing heroin. I'm all, you know, life is in the toilet. Our career is over, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, I had a meeting with the label to see if there was light at the end of the tunnel. And let me tell you, there is. And I'm like, okay, great. He's like, yeah, but it's a freight train and it's coming right for you. These guys ain't going to do crap for you. <laughs> so they're going to give you your second record just to fulfill the legal contractual obligation, but don't expect them to put a dime. In it. So at that point, one of the things we had put in the contract is, is that Geffen's distribution over in Europe wasn't that strong. So we said if we wanted to, we could go with outside publicists, outside distribution. So we were like, listen, the response from all the English press and UK and all that Europe really dig the band. They get it. They're very blues-based, really, really great response. So we say, okay, on the second record, we're going to go over there. We're going to finally get to play. We go there and the lines are around the block. The press is great. Um, at the time, Thunder, that band Thunder, who yeah. was really big over in the UK, were headlining the Monsters of Rock tour. And the singer and the guitar player, the heads of the band, saw us play at the Marquee. That was sold out. He comes backstage afterwards and says, hey, listen, we'd love to get you on Monsters of Rock. We have bands that are willing to pay us tens of thousands of dollars. We'll pay you to come play. So I was like, great. So I called back to Herbie Herbert and I said, Herbie, we could play to 50, 70,000 people a night. He's like, okay, how much will they pay? I'm like, well, they're offering us like a thousand bucks a night, but our expenses, we're going to still need about another eight, 10,000 bucks a week. Herbie's like, that's like nothing for as many people as we're going to see. He calls back to Geffen and Geffen says, screw you. I'm not giving you a dime. Labels would kill for this opportunity for any one of their young bands. So I was like, well, here we go again. David is serious. He, he just wants to end this. So I call up the guy from Thunder, and I say, the guy, uh, dude, I'm sorry, but they won't. Okay, we'll give you 1500 a night. 
So now we're like five grand short. He wouldn't give it to us. So we had to pass. We couldn't do it. So we came back home. And about two months later, our contract was up. The option was due. We had a meeting at the label. I go into the meeting with Eddie Rosenblatt, the president. David Geffen is there. Herbie Herbert is there. And David just looks at me and he's like, well, this is what we're going to do. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that, um, you know, you made us look really bad and, you know, you edge a dirty laundry in public. And I've had huge battles with Don Henley. I've had huge battles with Neil Young. You know why Neil Young didn't put out a record for 10 years? That's because we were in a fight. I collect my artists like I collect my artwork. And if I want to buy you, I will buy you and put you on a shelf or in a closet and never let anybody see you again. And I have that right to do it. And it's my choice. And that's what I'm going to do. Now, I know there's a lot of labels that would love to get their hands on you. and You could start fresh with no debt. But in the contract, there's a thing called a key man clause, Ron. And I'm going to hold you to the key man clause so that you can't go and take this band and go to Electro Atlantic or any of these other labels that would scoop you up in five minutes and start again. So that's what I'm going to do. So best of luck. Anything you want, give us a call. You got some demos, give us a call. But this is over. We're not putting out any more of your records as Little Caesar. And to that date, no record from Geffen has ever been pressed and re-released. You couldn't get a Caesar record that was sell for 150 bucks on eBay years ago until I started to bootleg them. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the nutshell nightmare Spinal Tap story of what happened to a band that had great potential that never got really a moment more than eight seconds in the sun.
that is so fucking crazy. I mean, I've listened. Yeah, yeah. I've heard. I've heard <laughs> stories about uh, David Geffen, and I think that the well, there's a really good uh, piece with David Geffen in the um, Eagles documentary. I think. I mean, there's just there was so many things like that. Like when we went up to Vancouver to do the record, we had this publicist who helped break Guns and Roses, which I found out was like four attempts to break them because I became friends with their manager, Alan Niven, years later. He's still a friend of mine. And I didn't know this, but when we got up to Vancouver, you know, meanwhile, all the guys in the band were married. A couple of guys had kids. You know, we weren't, we looked like we were insane, but we were all actually college educated, really good guys, gentlemen. We just looked like psychos, you know. Now, Bryn Bridenthal, who was the, the publicist at Geffen, she was always putting out fires for Guns N' Roses. For us, she was trying to light fires. She wanted to make us look like the bad boys of rock and roll. Yet, meanwhile, they're trying to break us at top 40. It's like, you guys got to get your act together. Anyway, Bryn, when we booked Bob Rock to do the record, we showed up in Vancouver. He was managed by this guy, Bruce Allen, who really runs the Canadian music business. Brian Adams' manager. Lover boy. Lover boy, exactly. Yeah. So he's like he's like the Jimmy Iovine of, of Canadian music. So we pulled into town that first day, and we go to meet Bruce. When we buzz the door, and hi, little Caesar, and we hear like mumbling in the background, and they don't open the door. So we ring it again. And then they finally open the door. We come upstairs, and we see all these like secretaries running in their offices and closing the door. I'm like, we're looking at each other. This is kind of weird. So we get into Bruce's office, and he's there. And he's got um, this baseball bat in his lap. (laughs) Okay. And he's like, okay, listen, guys, listen, I I know Geffen's got a lot of hope for you guys. And I I know you make great music, but Bryn has told us what you're about. There'll be no shooting heroin. There'll be no beating up women. There'll be no raping women. There'll be no riding your Harleys through the hotels. There'll be none of that shit. This is my city. This is my business. And we're like, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? <laughs> it's like, we've never touched a woman in our life. We're married. We're educated. We're gentlemen. And after about 20 minutes, he realized that he's like, oh, my God, you're very articulate. You're polite. And I'm like, where did you get this? He said, from Bryn Bridenthal. And I'm like, why is he saying this about us? So it's stuff like this. It's just like, you know, when you kind of get your rude awakening as to how a business can be or an industry can be. And it was really, really shocking and bizarre. Cause you know, I mean, the thing is, it's that, you know, the guys in the band, you know, listen, we came from LA. There was a lot of ego in this town and there was a lot of guys trying to give the impression that they were rock stars before they were rock stars up on the sunset strip with the girls and the drugs and the, you know, all of that. We didn't even have roadies. We humped our own gear. So, you know, he, here you got these guys, and we're just like, hey, listen, man, we're not doing this for sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We're doing this because we love each other. We love the music, and we just want to have a career. It's not even about being famous or rich. I just would love to do this to the day that I die. Now, yeah, we got this huge record deal. We got these big shots behind us, but the band is the one telling all these guys, well, we have to make a great record, and we have to sell some records, and then we can maybe get a fan base and then do that on the second record even more. And then maybe after three releases, we'll go platinum, you know, and all these guys, are, well, well, what kind of crap is that? You, you guys got to become more ambitious. I'm like, who do you think we are? <laughs> you know, it's like, you guys can't just wave your hand and make a band go platinum. And sure enough, 
especially when all of these forces go to odds with each other, it becomes impossible. So it really messed me up. I wound up, you know, falling into a heroin habit for seven years Wow! because I couldn't differentiate between credibility artistically and credibility financially, you know, commercially, that one has nothing to do with the other. And also to think that I've just given up my whole career to this guy, David Geffen, and I'm never going to get to make music again. Now, what am I going to do? Yeah, I wouldn't have gotten all tattooed up if I thought (laughs) I would have become a lawyer, you know? So it was a really rough time. And then, you know, you start doing this stuff to self-medicate. The next thing I know, man, I'm so deep into it and wrapped up in all this self-pity crap. And I wound up doing some other musical projects like this Manic Eden thing I did with the guys from Whitesnake, Adrian and Rudy and Tommy. Yeah, so that's a perfect segue because I have all these notes and I want to get into some of this stuff. So you talk about Manic Eden. I've never even heard of this band. I went and I started looking into it and I saw that James Christensen was the original singer, the guy from House of Lords, and they got rid of him and he never even ended up singing on the record and they bring you in. And Manic Eden is the name of the band, which is essentially... Tommy Aldridge, Rudy Sarzo, Adrian Vandenberg, the core of what was Whitesnake 87, basically, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So how did that come about? Well, I was sitting on my couch watching Cops and Judge Judy doing my heroin for, you know, <laughs> for a couple of years, God. wanting to know why they I didn't become the rock star they promised me. And the phone rings and it's Adrian. And he's like, listen, you know, I got your number and you know, I've always been a fan of your vocals and we're doing this project and we had James and he was trying to take the band in a whole nother direction and some other things went down personally, which he never got into. And so we've decided to make a change. We have a deal with JVC in Japan. And so they're going to pay for the record. I need you to come in and finish off a bunch of songs that need some melody and lyrics. And there's some songs already written and we're going to go into a studio here in LA. You want to knock out the record release it in Japan, and then we can shop it here in the States and over in Europe, and it should do really well. So I was like, oh, wow, okay, I've got a shot at a career again. So they sent me a bunch of songs, and I wrote melodies and lyrics and just kind of put my nose to the grindstone for a few weeks, and they really liked what I'd come up with. So we booked the studio. We went in with Tom Fletcher, and you know, we did this kind of stripped-down, sort of progressive blues kind of record. And... So we give it to the Japanese who kind of scratch their heads because they were expecting like a white snake record, <laughs> you know, right. and Adrian, because at this point where this is 94, this is the height of the grunge thing. Adrian wanted to stay true to rock and roll, but he didn't want to do an overblown anthemic. He felt music was changing and wanted to show that there was other viable form styles of music other than Seattle type stuff yeah. that fans could enjoy. So. It did really well in Japan. I think it went just about gold. I don't know. But they kind of scratch their heads. And Adrian's like, it doesn't really matter. We're going we're gonna to get a label here in the States. And so we started to meet with all these labels. And they were like, no, they wouldn't even meet with us. And Adrian was like really frustrated. And they're like, no, that music is dead. He's like, what music? You haven't even heard the music. Nah, it's with you guys, all those, with those names in the band, nah. That's so like 80s hair metal stuff. He's like, it's not. Listen to it. They're like, well, listen, you know, this good that you got Ron Young. He's got like this street credibility. 
we can kind of work off of that. And I'm like sitting there going, guys, don't look at me. This is not my idea, <laughs> you know? And it's like these guys collectively have sold millions of records and nobody in the States would touch it. Yeah. So we wound up going with, I think it was SPV over in, in Europe. And they started putting it out. And all of a sudden, basically, the, those guys who, you know, they've been making good money and had careers for a decade said, we can't just sit around and not make music trying to get this thing a label and a deal and a dates. And so Adrian went back to working with David Coverdale and it just kind of fell apart. But super great guys. It was such an honor to work with them. Uh, learned a lot from them. Just really, really. Rudy has just got this giant heart of gold. Tommy is a monster. He bicycles 40 miles a day. It's like, it's unbelievable. And Adrian is a super sweet guy, super versatile, super talented guy. It was really, you know, so I just kept doing heroin at that point. <laughs> See, I'm fucked. I can't get a career if my life depended on it. Because <laughs> I thought, here we go. I, this is finally going to get it back on the road here. You were literally the prototypical poster child for everything that is uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah, everything that could go wrong would go wrong. I was wow. like the Ralph, the Ralph Cramden of rock and roll. Yeah. yeah, wow. Did you guys ever play a live date, Manic Eden? We did some acoustic shows in Japan for a promotional run. Yeah. That's all we ever did, We, but never electric, never a full set. Never a full band. I hadn't heard of this band before the last couple of days when I'm doing this research. I pulled the record up. It's not even out on Spotify. I pulled the record up on YouTube. I listened to it. I'm like, yeah, you know, I think it would have been better served if it was more straight ahead, hard rock, blues, hard rock, but hard rock. It sounds fine, but, and granted, this is listening to it once or twice, right? I didn't yeah, listen but, to but it. But listen, much. you know, first reactions, especially if you have a musical background, yeah. you know, you only get one chance to make a first impression. Yeah, that's and right. It was interesting when we did that because there was some tension when we made that record because Tom Fletcher, the producer, wanted it to be more like when Aerosmith goes and does like a bluesy tribute record. It's a little, even a little bit more in your face, a little bit more. And Adrian kept kind of, he kind of had a little bit of an internal battle. Should he be this technical wizard guy that he's known for being, but we're trying to do this stripped down record. And I think the focus was a little bit diluted and it kind of affected the overall effect of the record. I mean, basically, Vandenberg's Moon Kings is probably what Manic Eden should have been, which is just right. a straight-ahead hard rock blues type thing, you know? Right. Uh, in my opinion, anyway. That Yeah. And remember, this is 1994. Yeah, of course. everything was, if you weren't sounding like Pearl Jam or Creed or Stone Temple or, yeah. you know, and so it was just kind of interesting. And hindsight is always twenty twenty. And unfortunately, you know, the band never, we've never played live together. Yeah. For me, I had a problem with that right off the bat. Yeah. We should become a band. We should go do shows. We should take these songs that we write. We should play them in front of people. And we should start getting a feeling so that we can record these things and really give them a voice and not build it in the studio. Because I always just think that music suffers when you create something in the studio and then try to bring it to life afterwards. And that's exactly what happened. I just kind of felt that the process was reversed. And so Frontiers Records would love to give that band a deal today. 
Frontiers Records will give anybody that's got five seconds of notoriety from 1980 <laughs> to $8 to make a record, give it six minutes of promotion, and then move on to the 52 other rusted metal bands on that label. <laughs> Not that I have an opinion about it. <laughs> that, that, that actually sounds about right. But, <laughs> yeah. but you know what? I will say this for Frontiers. There is good stuff on Frontiers Records. It's like any label. And you know what? To back that up, just we talked to them about putting out eight and they, they offered us like eight dollars to do it. And eight bucks I for eight. Had, pretty pretty much. Yeah, yeah. A bucket track. You yeah. know, come on. You know, <laughs> and that's that's everything. But but the fact is is they're they're passionate and they keep a whole genre of music yeah. alive. But remember, we've had this albatross around our neck since the day the band came out people always thought we were like some hair metal band where we're still in heavy rotation with two tracks on hair nation. We're not a hair metal band. We're from LA, but we're not poison. We're not Warren. We're not, you know, you know, they tried to group people from those years in that same bucket. They do that to bands like Tesla. They did it to Guns N' Roses. No promo picture of Little Caesar ever from that time period would have been classified as hair metal, ever. Right. I mean, you guys were about as far from looking like a hair metal band as anything in those days, you know? Yeah, but, you know, but the thing is, is, you know, when you're dealing in a business realm, people need to pigeonhole you, especially back in those days with very formulaic programming. Where are they from? L.A. And, you know, it's like, oh, they're an L.A. hair metal band. You know, it's 1989. It's like, eh, no, we're not. If you'd listen to music, we're really basically trying to be like it's 1976 all over again. Yeah. And that's just eh, one of those things I figured, well, you know what? Give us some time. And we'll, we'll, we'll make it real clear. A couple of releases, a couple of more this and that. People will start figuring out. But we never got that opportunity. Yeah. But you put out some. I mean, it's not like you've sat back and just had the debut record and you're living off that debut record and living off Chain of Fools and stuff like that. You guys have put out several records along the way that I think are pretty in line with what you guys are as a band. I mean, there's like, I don't listen to the debut Little Caesar record and then listen to, you know, something like Under the Influence or, or, um, this time it's different. I don't listen to those records and go, oh, these are completely different records, you know? They're kind of in line with what the band is. And now recently, last year, you guys put out eight. And again, it's a good solid rock record that is right in with the rest of the Little Caesar records to me. Thank you for that. And the interesting thing about it is a lot of our counterparts from that period of time put out highly produced records. And we were trying to be dated in 1989. So that allows us to stay dated for as long as we want to be dated because we don't have a production value to try to keep up with. And quite honestly, some of the records I hear our contemporaries putting out sound really kind of goofy today because they're trying to please the ear of fans that know their music from a hair metal, very produced, giant production value kind of record. And we're lucky enough that we always just wanted to be a grungy rock and roll band that wasn't relying on trickery or enormity. And it keeps us just letting us put out straight ahead blues based rock records. And there's nothing innovative. We've never done anything innovative. 
We've never broken any new ground. All we've ever done is trying to be paying homage and tribute to the music that inspired us and do it in our own little, with our own little accent and trying to keep it alive. And that allows us to stay humble and creative and contemporary, even in its consistent datedness. <laughs> so, Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a uh, fair description of exactly what you guys do. I mean, it's it's almost as your sound, I mean, Little Caesar sound to me is like, one part Sabbath, one part Zeppelin, one part Holland Wolf, one part ACDC, and put it in a blender. It- yeah, good. I'm glad that's the impression, because that's all the kind of influences and all the kind of music. When we go in and make a record, you know, we're really trying to to get a little bit of all of that. You know, even when we write songs, it's like, you know what we haven't done? We haven't done a good, you know, ACDC kind of riff song. You know, we haven't done a real dark Sabbathy kind of song. Or let's do a country cover and do it the way Social Distortion would do a Johnny Cash song, you right. know. And it's again, it's all like it's like going to the supermarket and taking a little sample from the nuts and the candy and the and that's the way we look at it. We don't ever sit and go in there and go, well, we have to create this opus of music. And it's it's not. It's like sticking a bunch of kids in the candy store and we just kind of run amok and throw it all in one bag and pull it all out and hope that people hear what you seem to hear from it and appreciate it because it's all it's all warm and inviting and familiar you know yeah and i mean listen you you joked about being the ralph the ralph crandon of rock and roll given all the shit that you and this band have gone through here we are 30 some odd you know years later and you guys are still putting out records you're still playing live and you've been involved in some pretty great projects. I mean, I, I know you didn't sing on the record, but I thought the four horsemen record was really good. You know? Yeah. No, those guys, you know, man, I'm really blessed. I know I've known some players and singers who are enormously talented, who never got any moment in the sun. And I have such a deep respect for them. And we're so grateful that we, listen, we still go on tour in Europe. Scandinavia a couple times a year. We're trying to do more in the States. And we're so blessed to get to do that, that even our small, loyal fan base, because we didn't have a lot of time in the sun or the big machinery continued to be behind us. You know, we, we took some time off and when, when we finally sort of all licked our wounds and we healed from just really the horrific set of circumstances that went down in a short period of time. We all we, we all loved each other and stayed friends and family. We finally just decided to take a break. And one day we just started to itch to play together. We just said, but if we're going to do this, it's got to be purely for fun, for the love of music. As soon as it starts turning into anything like the business thing that it was before, we're going to stop. And so we've just been really lucky that we have enough, you know, fans and enough, you know, notoriety and remembrance and we keep putting out enough stuff on a stripped down kind of basis that we can cover our costs and just self-release, as we were talking about earlier. You know, some of the some of the downfall of the music business for some people is the blessing for other people. Because of social media, YouTube, and everything else, there's a lot of people that get to put out music that wouldn't be heard in the previous corporate, very strict business flow of release of material. And so we try to turn that into a positive for us. And 
deal directly with our fans. We're not trying to create these illusions that we're out living this rock and roll life. And it's just a big party and we're larger than life. We've always been a down to earth blue collar band. And so on social media and stuff, we can be very connected to the long-term friends that we make one by one in these venues where we go. And there's just a couple hundred people in the room. We go out, we don't do the VIP thing after the show where you pay extra money to shake my hand. You know, that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. We go out and we thank people for showing up to our shows and taking the time and the energy to keep what we love to do alive. And we get to make really great friends in really great places. Right. Yeah. I think that's honorable. I think that's how it should be done. I mean, it, it, that's something to me that comes from where music should come from, which is the heart, right? As a fan of music, music comes from the heart and it sounds like everything the band's been through, that's where you guys are coming from today, you know? Yeah. And listen, you know, I know a lot of guys that I had to go out and find, start other businesses and get other careers. There's bands now that this is all they've been doing for 30 years and they got nothing else. So they got to get in the van and not the tour bus they got to do the meet and greets to generate enough revenue to pay the hotel bill and get the gas in the van. And I have a deep, deep, deep respect for them. And it's getting harder for them to do it. And sometimes they're faced with choices that tend to annoy the fans or piss them off or think, but, you know, these guys are trying to, you know, raise kids on a smaller and smaller revenue pool. And, you know, they got adult things to do and adult choices to make. And, it's getting really, really hard. And and I have a deep respect for these guys that are still out there doing it. Yeah. Have you guys played the Monsters of Rock cruise yet? No. And every year it seems like we're in consideration for it. And then the invite never comes. Yeah. (laughs) We kind of found out the reason for that because there was some tension between somebody that represents us and the guy that puts it on. And I'll just leave it at that. Uh, but to be quite honest with you, the thought of getting locked on a boat with like 3000 drunk people scares me a little bit. <laughs> dude, let me say this. So we did our first monsters of rock cruise last year. And I'll tell you this, just in talking to you this past hour and a half, I can tell you right now, this thing's for you. Okay. This would be right up your alley. And here's why, Ron. First of all, everybody's not drunk. Yes, there are drunk people. That is true. But everybody's not drunk. And these are real music fans that not only know who Little Caesar are, but don't just know Chain of Fools. They know what you put out recently. They know what you put out in the past. Right. So they're real fans that are music to them is still a big part of their life. And they all congregate in one place with a great lineup of people where the whole entertainment of the food, the occasional drinks, but more or less it's to to have the electricity all bond together and fill the room. I had a feeling that could be one of the possibilities of how that could go too. So, you know, okay. I will take that to heart and try to reach out and make it happen because it keeps coming up and I never really push for it. And, you know, the guys that I know in bands that do it say that, yeah, you know, there's a lot of bands that want to get on this thing. And I've always been like, "Eh." you know, because I handle all the band's business. There's no reason to have a manager at this point. So there's a lot of things that I just don't try to be assertive about. So I'll definitely look into that. 
I think that it would be right up your alley, and I, I don't think you would regret it. Yeah, well, now we, we actually did pick up a manager. We're working with Scotty Lubbock and Scully, and they're starting to really help things out for me. I've been so self-sufficient for so long. It's kind of weird for me to turn over the reins, and that's how we hooked up, so I'm grateful for that. Yeah, so, Scully's a good guy. Yeah, so I'm hoping that maybe they can start using the relationships they have to go, hey, man, you guys should bring Little Caesar aboard and we get the invite. Yeah, hopefully for sure, because uh, I think you'd enjoy it. Cool. So what's up next for Little Caesar? Well, right now, we took this this summer touring season off because our bass player, Farrah, is about to have twins. Awesome. So no Europe or Scandinavia this year. And we had some a bunch of dates offered to us this summer going out through the States. And we just, you know, he can't leave home and disappear for a while. So sure. we're going to get through that and get back in the saddle and just, yeah, start getting these little, you know, we're trying to do these weekend runs all around the States and up to Canada. Yep. So we're working on getting that going and uh, get another video or two together for the tracks off of eight, you know, because it's, you know, it used to be a record had a viability of six, eight weeks unless it went enormous and they just keep going. But nowadays with the music businesses, you can just kind of drop something off and pick it back up and release another video and get more attention to something. And it doesn't doesn't really change because there isn't a big machinery that you have to plug it into. So so that's there's a freedom in that. So we're looking forward to that. And uh, like it looks like we're going to be doing some a show with our buddies in L.A. Guns and our buddies in Enough's Enough down in San Diego at House of Blues at the end of the year. So. We're just starting to get close to the old birth date. So we're starting to say, okay, we can start putting some stuff together for after that when the kids are hatched and <laughs> get the, get back in the saddle here. So Yeah, that'll be great. Well, hopefully hopefully Scully can get you out here to uh, Atlanta one day and uh, you and I can meet face-to-face. And uh, hopefully you guys will get on the Monsters of Rock cruise at some point. I'd love to, man. I really would. And thank you so much for taking the time and the interest to talk with me and talk about our music and our past and stuff. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I've enjoyed it. It's been a great conversation. Like, like I said, uh, you know, music fans that have a way of just getting together and, and shooting the shit and it, you know, never seems old. <laughs> no, it, it doesn't, you know, and I don't know if it's, you know, like old guys sitting on the porch going, I remember when, you know, <laughs> probably a little bit of that, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. But you know what? I won't point it out. You don't point it out. We'll just live in our little fantasy world. You know, <laughs> so. there you go. Hey, you want to pick a song to play us out? Yeah. Off the new record. Eight. Let's play Vegas. Vegas. It is off the latest little Caesar record from eight. Here you go. Thanks, Ron. Thank you, Steven. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.